Chapter forty nine, part one of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty nine, part one. The Right Honourable W. E. Forster was the most fair-minded, liberal, and charitable statesman who ever opened a Pandora box. To him, as cabinet minister, was confided the framing of the new public school system. In presenting it in Parliament, he said that the government, in trying to deal with the proverbial religious difficulty, had found itself confronted with the irreligious difficulty. From that epigrammic phrase flew out all manner of angry conflicts. The clergy and the dissenting ministers had for generations alike been inbreeding the belief that morality depended entirely on religion, and religion on the Bible, and this imported much heat into the controversies. The atmosphere became charged with polemics. In 1870 an accomplished causist, Dr. Lydon, preached the Lenten sermons at St. James, and arraigned the famous Unitarians, quoting their tributes to Christ, then claimed that they could not logically go so far unless they went farther. Unless Christ was divine, supernaturally born, and wrought miracles, they must regard him as self-seeking and egotistical, his influence in history a successful imposture. Lydon was made canon of St. Paul's, whose guns he turned on Westminster Abbey, where Canon Farrar, scholarly and vigorous but rather rhetorical, was repudiating hell and eternal punishment. Professor Huxley, as candidate for the school board, was assailed by the orthodox, and protoplasm, evolution, agnosticism were discussed at the hustings. In fact, London in the seventies had become a Mars Hill. Then came a scientific apostle. This was William Kingdom Clifford, appointed professor of applied mathematics at University College, London, in 1871. His coming to London was a great event. At twenty-seven he was regarded by the leading scientific men as their peer, and he had gone through all the phases of religious faith into well-informed freedom. He had a winning personality, irresistible indeed, and in public speaking could charm alike the Royal Society or a popular audience. Our acquaintance made at Cambridge became friendship in London, and my wife and I used to attend the weekly evenings in his rooms when his friends, among them always Lady Pollock and her sons, gathered around him. With Professor Clifford I had some droll adventures with mediums. The chief thematurgist was Mrs. Guppy, who had séances at her house in Hampstead. At a discussion in South Place Chapel I was challenged to test this medium, and took Clifford along. A dozen sat around a table, but we two were the only unbelievers. Handsome Mrs. Guppy appeared in fine décolletage. I was placed on one side of her, Clifford on the other, and we both knew that it was not she who was to do the tricks. There were raps ordering the gaslights to be put out, and each one of the company to choose something to be thrown on the table something likely to be near by. The door was locked, the key given me to hold, and before the lights were turned off I examined the room which was nearly without furniture. Various things were called for—a rose, a slipper, an onion, violets, a sausage, etc. 
Clifford demanded a small plate of artificial teeth, which were in the pocket of his overcoat in the hall. I said it was necessary to call for something not easily concealed under a dress, and demanded a large bandbox. When the lights were turned on, everything called for was on the table except what Clifford and I had demanded. Mrs. Guppy admitted the séance to be a failure, and did not venture on any further experiment. Another experiment was with the famous Williams. The séance was in my house. The method of Williams was that we should surround the table, finger hooked in finger, then in the dark he would make some excuse for changing the finger, and contrive to get those on each side of him to hook the forefinger and little finger of the same hand, leaving one of his hands free to do the tricks. Clifford had heard of that device and warned me. When we had been seated for some time, Williams said his finger held by Clifford was weary and proposed to change it. But Clifford, in a low voice, declined on his side, as I did on mine whereupon Williams raised the light and rushed out of the house, leaving his accordion and banjo, which I sent to him the next day. Several credulous ladies who had been victimized by Williams were present, and had the detection explained to them. Williams was broken up in London by this exposure, and the last I heard of him was at Rotterdam, where the customs officers seized his paraphernalia of wigs, masks, rag-hands, and phosphorus. After the marriage of Clifford in April 1875 to Miss Lucy Lane, now distinguished in the world of letters, we often met them. He was the idol of children as well as of parents. His resources in getting up home entertainments were as inexhaustible as his resources for chiming all varieties of minds by his lectures. Scientific men consulted him about their theories, artists about their pictures, skeptical theologians about their speculations. Clifford had a strong feeling that scientific men were not in sufficient relation with the general intelligence of the country, and not doing enough to liberate the people of all classes from degrading dogmas. In one of our talks it was arranged that there should be summoned a congress of liberal thinkers. This congress was held on June 13 and 14, 1878, in my South Place Chapel. It was the great centenary year of Voltaire and I came to it fresh from the great festival in Paris. May 30. Our Congress brought together leading men from all parts of the United Kingdom, and some from other European countries, from India, and from America. Nearly all of these four hundred congressmen, including several congresswomen, represented some congregation or society. We had broad churchmen, Unitarians, secularists, theists, and we had a tower of strength in my American friend, Wentworth Higginson. At the end of two days' discussion, an association was formed, its aim being defined as, number one, the scientific study of religious phenomena, number two, the collection and diffusion of information concerning religious movements throughout the world, number three, the emancipation of mankind from the spirit of superstition, number four, fellowship among liberal thinkers of all races. Number five, the promotion of the culture, progress, and moral welfare of mankind, and of whatever in any form of religion may tend towards that end. Number six, membership in this association shall leave each individual responsible for his own opinion alone, and in no degree affect his relations with other associations. The presidency of the association was conferred on Professor Huxley, and by him accepted. I remember well the satisfaction with which, referring to the eminent names in the membership, Huxley said, 
Freethinkers are no longer to be simply bullied. Several important men had discouraged our effort. Dr. James Martineau, who regretted that he could not attend, being at his summer-house in Scotland, expressed his belief that negation supplies no bond. It has its work to do, a legitimate work which I am far from depreciating, but in my opinion this work must be individually done, and beyond it a good deal must happen before religious combination becomes possible. Matthew Arnold wrote, I am strongly of opinion that the errors of popular religion in this country are to be dispersed by the spread of a better and wider culture, far more than by direct antagonism and religious counter-movements. On the other hand, the encouragements were much more numerous. Max Müller, Pieton, Carl Blind, Dr. M. Kalish, Leslie Stevenson, A. J. Ellis, F.R.S., Professor Estlin Carpenter, and indeed most of the younger generation of Unitarians and of the Secularists responded eagerly. Letters full of sympathy came to us from the continent, from Littré, Professor Hugenholtz of Holland, Professor T. H. Bost of Verrier, Monsieur Emile de Harven of Antwerp, and Monsieur Fix, editor of La Religion Laïque, came from Belgium and gave an address to the Congress. But alas, Clifford was not there. His health had broken down in April, and under peremptory warning he had gone with his wife to the Mediterranean. While the Congress was in session, I received a letter from him, written May 23, on the Morocco, en route from Fiume to Malta, saying how hard he had tried to write a paper for the occasion. A relapse at Venice had rendered it impossible, and he could only send me some notes he had made of the points he had meant to enlarge on. The notes are these. Catholics are fond of saying that an age of atheism is approaching in which we shall throw over all moral obligations and society will go to ruin. Then we shall see what is the true effect of all our liberal and scientific teaching. As a matter of fact, however, even themselves admit that the public conscience is growing in strength and straightness, while the Catholic dogmas and organism are more and more repudiated. We may see reason to believe that the former of those facts is the cause of the latter. Part of modern unbelief is no doubt due to the wider knowledge of criticism of the so-called evidence of Christianity. But in all ages sensible men have seen through that flimsy structure. Intellectual skepticism is not really more rife than it has been in many past periods. The main ground of hope for the masses is the moral basis of skepticism. 1. Its revolt against mythology. 2. Its revolt against the priestly organization of churches. As to the mythology, the dogma of eternal damnation is being quietly dropped, not as in the Jewish part of the New Testament, but it has been practically taught by the Christian organization for sixteen centuries. Therefore the Christian organization ought to be thrown away with it, for it is not an opinion like another, but a wicked thing to believe. As to the priestly organization, the practical effect of the Christian organization, the Church, has always been adverse to morality, and is now. The clergy is everywhere making more pronounced its revolt from the great principles which underlie the modern social structure. There is a strong antagonism between the Christian organization and the Jewish ethical literature, which our moral sense approves. And I believe that, so far as the Christian organization is concerned, the time has come for heeding again the ancient warning. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her sins, 
and that ye receive not of her plagues. End of notes. The association elected a committee of twenty-four, in which two were Hindus, Dairiaban of Bombay and Mitra of Calcutta, and also four ladies with plenary powers. We had several interesting meetings at Huxley's house, but it was found impossible to organize members scattered about the world in any central or definite movement. In fact, the association, so far as any active work had been contemplated, received a mortal stroke within the year of its birth. The life of it as an organization depended on the life of Clifford, which ended March 3, 1879. The scientific and philosophical thinkers—Huxley, Sir Frederick Pollock, Tyndall, Leslie Stephen, and others—had felt that this Congress was open to a great field for the admirable young orator so perfectly equipped as an apostle of scientific thought in its relation to religion and ethics. The association was never formally dissolved, and Huxley remained its president to the end. The committee met at his house and reached the conclusion that the two days Congress had done what was needed at the time, also that no further organization was needed, or possible, in England. Every serious thinker had the means of reaching the public, Magazines and journals were hospitable to all varieties of opinion, and, as Professor Tyndall said, it was always possible to summon another Congress when occasion called for it. I discovered by that Congress that, despite Martineau's assertion that negation supplies no bond, it is the only real bond between individual leaders of a people in their exodus from intellectual bondage. There were in that Congress at least seventy men prominent in their communities, either as preachers or writers several of them clergymen of the English Church. There were several titled persons, also Hindus, and a learned African, E. W. Blyden, Liberian Ambassador. These persons had here a chance to witness the enthusiasm which atheism could kindle, not only in scholarly men, but in cultured ladies such as Mrs. Ernestine Rose and Mrs. Harriet Law. The venerable George Jacob Holyoke, who in early life had been imprisoned for atheism, spoke amid the children of a tolerant era. There were old friends of Emerson, among them Goodwin Barmby, who used to listen to his lectures thirty years before. Solitary thinkers who had long sat eating their hearts, feeling themselves in a world to which they had no relation, came from their retreat, and made acquaintance with their kindred. To some extent this was even personal, for we gave at the end of the Congress a garden party at Hamlet House, where we then resided. Wentworth Higginson was our guest at the time, and even his old friends of Worcester and Boston might have been surprised could they have witnessed the combination of him and the radical preacher, the militant humanitarian organizer, the man of letters, and the society man. Higginson, while sympathetic with every sincere negation, held to his belief in immortality and his theism. He was thus, with his extemporaneous eloquence, precisely the man who could make the Congress a happy, cheerful one. In a sense, the association ended, but as Goethe said, a beautiful thing never ends. During the remainder of my life in London, I continually received evidences of happy effects of that Congress. Wonderful London! At the very moment when our assembly was probing the foundations of religion and theoretically abolishing superstition, around us was a recrudescence of wildest fanaticism. Lord Beaconsfield occupation of Cyprus, the raising of Cleopatra's needle beside the Thames, 
and several other things set off a swarm of apocalyptic apostles shrieking about the gathering of Jews to Palestine and the second coming of Christ. There was also a recrudescence of legal persecution. One of our South Place ladies, Mrs. Flora Carnegie, the beautiful wife of a gentleman of high social position, on appearing as a witness in some small case before Magistrate Newton, was bullied by him because she refused to swear on the Bible, and Edward Trulove, a veteran bookseller, was imprisoned for selling the Malthusian fruits of philosophy. My sacred anthology and the liberal congress in my chapel brought me the friendship of an increasing number of able men from India, Persia, and Japan. They, too, were pilgrims who had found no shrine. Contact with European thought had destroyed their old faith, but offered them only dogmas more repulsive. Tatui Baba, a learned ex-priest and statesman, and his Japanese friends in London begged me to go and preach in Tokyo, and let the people know that cultured people in England and America did not believe the gospel of the missionaries. I heard rumours of a Moslem scholar wandering about London, and in want, and after a long search found him. His name was Mohammed Bakar, and he told me his story, which I afterwards verified. He knew Hebrew, and study of the Old Testament converted him temporarily to the Jewish faith. But although he became eminent among the rabbins of Syria and Armenia for his learning, his convictions were still unsettled, and at last he took up Christianity. The British missionaries at Baghdad sent him to England for clerical orders, to aid his work among Moslems in Persia. The clergy in England received him with delight at his eloquence and scholarship but they dropped him as soon as they discovered that he simply regarded Jesus as an inspired teacher and did not accept the Trinity. On Christmas Day I found him in a garret without food or fire, shivering over his Bible and his Koran. His situation was relieved, but soon he died. He was a man of genius, but what of that? It was still a fearful thing for a Moslem to fall into the hands of the living Trinity. If London in the early seventies was a Mars Hill, towards the close of that decade a Babel in fragments appeared on the top of it. The situation was fairly represented by a large-coloured cartoon of our national church, issued by an artistic cynic calling himself Eon, containing good portrait characters of the principal preachers and lay agitators in church and state politics. In the centre of the dome of St. Paul's was pictured a sort of huge parachute, crowned with a bell, the handle on top being a cross. A gust tries to carry away the dome, and on each side of a split episcopal throne the bishops and canons hold it down by ropes. Some of the clergy are marching toward a tiara signpost marked, To Rome. Father Ignatius, Ignatius Fatus, looking on in monk's garb with clasped hands. In a cave, Moody and Sankey are grinding a hand-organ, while Salvationist General Booth, with drum and trumpet, shouts to them, "'Why don't you stick to your own country?' Beneath is Bradlaugh, liberty cap in one hand and torch in the other. Spurgeon and Mial are trying to drag down the Episcopal throne. Howis is playing his violin. Dr. Parker is trying to drag people to his booth, City Temple, with a drum. Stopford Brook, Voicey. Colenso, Herbert Spencer, Frederick Harrison are all portrayed. By the church association a donkey says, Let us bray! I am in a little tent marked Conway's Free and Airy Tabernacle, having a white flag inscribed, We move on. 
above all is a bust of darwin beneath being a stairway of geologic strata on which a gorilla is climbing and drawing by his tail huxley and tyndall the text connected with darwin was genesis twenty seven eleven behold my brother is an hairy man and i am a smooth man darwin the topmost figure in the picture on a level with st paul's dome is noble but the artist remembers the face in that of a gorilla ascending to a rising sun clothed in a cloud marked protoplasm to each figure a scripture text is applied and beneath the whole are the words a house divided against itself i was rightly placed in my picket tent on the extreme left almost beyond it and associated with the texts we have no continuing city let us go forth without the camp and he dwells at large my isolated position as a minister despite asperities of a few unitarians was no martyrdom personally and as a public teacher it gave me advantages i looked on all of the campus as equally struggling for error and could weigh without bias the value of each for human happiness for as the vision of heaven faded the importance of happiness in this world became paramount i could idealize any idol not worshipped by human sacrifices my sacred anthology closes with the words of omar khayyam o oh, my heart thou wilt never penetrate the mysteries of the heavens thou wilt never reach that culminating point of wisdom which the intrepid omniscience have attained resign thyself then to make what little paradise thou canst here below for as for that beyond thou shalt arrive there or thou shalt not some of my experiences as a confidant of troubled souls were such as make most religious novels commonplace several robert ellesmeres poured out their hearts in my study long before mrs humphrey ward's romance was heard of one or two catholic priests came to relate how their madonna had materialized in a human sweetheart still more were the young ladies of genius longing for some congenial task for their powers i once by a timely visit saved a peer from suicide the pistol was in his hand sometimes i received letters from evangelical preachers rebuking me for destroying faith and read them along with letters from mothers thanking me for having interested in some kind of spiritual ideal sons who had been mere scoffers few indeed joined south place chapel except those whose theological faith had been utterly lost my reputation for pulling down was due to the travellers through london chiefly american the venerable goodwin barmby who came to our congress of eighteen seventy eight was a man of whom the old friends of emerson will be glad to know something more and i make room in this chapter for a parenthesis concerning him end of chapter forty nine part one